Amen. Kiddos, you can be dismissed to your class in the back. Your teachers will be waiting for you back there. For the rest of you, I want you to open up to Galatians chapter 5. Because we are going to be continuing our study, slowing down a little bit. When you preach, you have to make decisions sometimes on where to pluck and where to strum. Where to go through quickly and where to slow down and pay attention to detail. And so I thought that it would just be wise. Now that we've made our way to Galatians chapter 5, to stop and pause for just a little bit on the fruit of the Spirit. There's nine of them in whole. And we're going to spend nine weeks touching on each one of these fruit of the Spirit, one at a time, one week at a time, for the next nine weeks. Today, we're going to be talking about love. But that raises a question, doesn't it? What is love? At first glance, boy, that seems like an easy thing to define, doesn't it? It's a word that we are so familiar with that you would think that we could easily come up with a definition. But I think just a few seconds of thought reveals that, that love is a word, it's a, it's a concept that is both, at the one hand, very familiar to us, and then, at the same time, maybe it's not so familiar. It's familiar, at least as far as words go, and that our, our culture is one that's obsessed with love. We talk about love, we sing about love, we produce movies about love, and yet at the same time, it's altogether unfamiliar because our culture is entirely confused about love. And what seems like forever ago, then President Barack Obama tweeted the following. He said, retweet, if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. You old codgers in here, retweet, if you believe everyone should be able to marry the person they love, hashtag love is love. I'm not going to com comment this morning on the wisdom or the morality of same-sex marriage. It's a different sermon for another day. But I do want to focus for a second on how our former president, I think in concert with many people in our culture, defines love. Even though it sounds really, really great. And it's really retweetable. The statement, love is love, is both meaningless and weightless. It's impossible for a statement like that, love is love, to accomplish anything or to persuade anyone who doesn't already agree with the assumptions of the one saying it. In other words, however one chooses to define love... That's the definition of love. Love is love. What's love? Well, it's love, of course. According to who? Well, if it's true that love is love, then it's also true that we are the ultimate standard for what love is. If love is love, how do we fill in what love is? And the answer is, we look to ourselves. We are the ultimate standard for love. And if that's the case, if we are the ultimate standard for love, then all of our intuitions, whatever they may be, they are unassailable. They are above reproach. And if you disagree with how I define love or where I choose to set the boundaries on love, well, that is unloving. In other words... Laws and institutions and arcane traditions, those things that have once held sway and authority over cultures for millennia, they can't stand in judgment over my definition of love. No, in fact, my definition of love stands in judgment over those things. But here's the problem. If everything is love then nothing is love. And because love has become a universal term for nothing in particular or everything in general, that makes conversations about love really difficult, doesn't it? As believers, we don't need to be caught up in all of the ambiguity of our cultural dialogue. 
Because we have been given a word that is outside of ourselves, directly from the one who is in and of himself the very standard and definition of love. That he's not only the standard of love, but he is the very source of love that gives us a plumb line, a means by which we might measure and judge what love is. And that is God the creator who has revealed himself in his word and who has redeemed us by his grace in Christ, who is the highest example of love. We are not floating out there in a sea of subjectivity. We have an objective reality outside of us that we can point to to say that is love. And it governs who we are, it governs how we live, and it is at the very heart of the gospel that we preach. And that's what we're going to see in our text this morning. That the fruit of the Spirit is love. And as we consider this, what we're going to see is this big idea. Everything I'm going to talk about this morning is essentially summed up in this big idea. That the Spirit is making us like Christ so that we might sacrificially love as He loves. The Spirit is making us like Christ so that we might sacrificially love as He loves. That's what the Spirit is doing. I'm going to back all the way up to verse 16, and I'm going to read all the way through right at the beginning of verse 22. Just follow along with me. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another. To keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, then you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, just as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. This is God's word spoken to us. You can trust it. Because it is without error having been divinely inspired. May the Lord write us on our hearts by the power of his Spirit so that we would walk in it. But let's consider this for just a second. The fruit of the Spirit is love. A couple things that we need to notice here, that the fruit of the Spirit, notice that that's in the singular, the fruit of the Spirit, singular, is opposed to the works of the flesh. In other words, the Spirit is trying to produce in us one single reality that is exemplified by a variety of characteristics. Essentially, the fruit of the Spirit is trying to produce in us Christ-likeness. In fact, what Paul's getting at here is that the Spirit, that what God is doing through the Spirit is producing a, a brand new humanity. In the same way that the fruit of the Spirit is opposed to the works of the flesh, well, so is the last Adam opposed to the first Adam. And all of the things that characterize the first Adam is being overturned, undone, and replaced by the character of the last Adam. In other words, the Spirit of God is trying to produce in us Christ-likeness. Not just trying, He is. Then when you look at this list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that is a glorious picture of our Lord Jesus Christ and His humanity. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is producing in those who have been united to Christ. Remember what Paul says? It's no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. 
Paul says earlier in chapter 4 that I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Question, how is Christ formed in us? Answer, through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is producing Christ in us. So the fruit of the Spirit is Christ-likeness. And that's exactly what we see in this portrait of godliness. It's to make us like the last Adam. It is to produce in us a new humanity, humanity as God intended it to be, perfectly reconciled and in right relationship with him and reflecting his glory to the world, that we would look like Christ. That word love that he says there, specifically it's the word agape. The ways that it was used in Greek language prior to this was actually really wasn't used that often. It didn't have a whole lot of meaning to it. And so what God did through the inspiration of the Spirit and the biblical authors is inject this word agape with, with brand new, glorious, radiant meaning. And it's a meaning that is located and defined specifically in the person and the work of Christ. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God is love. It is not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That Christ filled this term with brand new meaning. And now it is, it's glowing with the radiance of God's glory and grace because it is defined by Christ. So the fruit of the Spirit is Christ-like love that exemplifies the glory and the grace of God. It is a kind of love that seeks the good of others over my own good. It is the kind of love that will lay down his life, not just for his friends, but for his enemies. Paul, in Galatians, has had a lot to say about love. You may remember all the way back up at the beginning of chapter 5. Here he's addressing legalists, those who want to leverage the law of God in such a way to exalt themselves over others looking ultimately to themselves and their own obedience as the means by which they might gain a right standing with God or keep a right standing with God. You remember what he says? Look at this. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says in verse 6 that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, that's just shorthand for keeping the whole law, counts for anything but only faith working through love. Love is what counts. Later on, he addresses the equal and opposite error. This is what we talked about last week. Not just legalism, but libertinism. Those who would abuse their liberty. Those who would throw aside the law of God and say, well, because I'm forgiven in Christ, I can live however I want. He says, in the same way that love frees us from the bonds of legalism, love is what binds us to the law of God. Look at this. You are called to freedom, brothers, verse 13. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Remember what we said last week? You have been freed to be a slave. That's the idea of serve there. It's the word doulos. You've been freed to be a slave, and that slavery is characterized by one overarching, controlling idea or characteristic. What is it? It is through Love. Why? Because according to verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. What is that word? Love. It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, the freedom from legalism isn't libertinism. The freedom from legalism is love. That's at the very heart of the law, and that is what Christ is producing. And the freedom from the kind of life that would seek to live free from God and free from others, which is ultimately slavery, is love. Love is what binds all things together. It is the overall grace from which all these other graces grow. And that's exactly what we see in Christ. You say, well, how am I supposed to love? What does this love look like? 
How do I love one another? What's the example? Well, Paul's already established that earlier in Galatians. Chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, listen to this, who loved me. And here's how love is divined or defined. Here's the, the curves and the characteristic of love. Who loved me and gave himself for me. We put away selfishness and vain conceit. We consider others more important than ourselves because that's what it looks like to have the attitude of Christ. What does this love look like? It is the fruit of the Spirit is the kind of love that gives itself up for others. That is the law, or that is the kind of love that fulfills the law. And it's a kind of love that can't be found in our own resources. This love is not just a difficult kind of love. This is an impossible love. You do not have the resources in and of yourselves. You are not creative enough. You are not compassionate enough. You are not empathetic enough. You are, apart from the grace of Christ, dead in Adam. You are a slave to sin. In fact, if you were to go to 1 Corinthians 13, you know the chapter with all that love. Love is kind. Love is patient. You realize the whole reason that Jesus ended up on the cross is because of our inability to love like that. That our love is a self-centered love apart from the grace of Christ. And we are enslaved to seeking our own interest. And it's only when we have been freed by the power and grace of Christ by putting our faith in him and getting new life in Christ, becoming new creations, that we are now able to love in such a way that the law demands. That's why we said last week, the gospel doesn't eradicate the law. The gospel strengthens it. It changes our relationship to the law so that that which we were once unable to obey and to do, we can now do. And so the question becomes, how do we keep from preaching over the next nine weeks just killer bee sermons? Be loving. Be joyful. Be peaceful. That's just moralism. That's just the idea that Christianity at its very heart is what we do. It's not to say that we don't do anything, but it's to say that Christianity, what we do is ultimately springs from, it is sourced in, something that has been given to us, something that we have received. And so what is it ultimately that separates us, that separates the works of the flesh, verse 19, from the fruit of the Spirit? It's not a white-knuckled doing better. What separates the works of the flesh from the fruit of the Spirit is the gospel. It is grace. That these are the kind of fruit that can only be brought about in our lives by the sovereign grace of God. That's why it is called the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit is the gift that you've received by faith alone in Christ. That was established in Galatians chapter 3. And when you receive the Spirit by faith as a gift, that Spirit unites you to Christ and now begins to form in you the very life of Christ. That you are a new creation. He is doing something in you that you cannot do for yourself. But he's also producing in you the very things that God is demanding of you. That it begins with the Spirit. He is the source. And the whole reason that Paul here in verse 22 mentions the love first is because love is the overall grace from which all of the other graces flow. It is the foundation for everything else. It binds all things, everything together. That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. And above all of these, above all this other good stuff that I've told you to do and to be, above everything, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's the egg in the batter that congeals everything, that makes everything work, is love. 
And so the first fruit of the Spirit. It's not so much about our love for God, but it is about our love for others. Yeah, beginning with anyone and everyone that we encounter, that's our neighbor. But he's going to say in Galatians 6, particularly those in the household of faith. What he's addressing here is specifically love that we have for other Christians. The love that we have that crosses over every one of our differences. The love that we have that crosses over all of the barriers that might come between our fellowship. Here, Paul, when he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, he's not talking about sentimental feelings of being nice to one another. But he is talking about real practical proof that we love and accept one another in a very down-to-earth, caring, providing, helping, encouraging, and supporting one another, even when it hurts a lot and even when it costs a lot. That's the kind of love that he's talking about here. And it's the kind of love that only God can produce in us by his grace. Because he is the source of love. It's like John says, God is love. Common question is this. Well, before God created everything, what was he doing? What was God doing in eternity past before he created the heavens and the earth? Answer, God was loving. That he has existed in a perfect, harmonious, infinite relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit is bound together, energized by each person's love for the other. The, the church fathers had a Greek word for it. It was called perichoresis. It was, it was this idea of a binding energy that, that united everything. And this is the idea in the Godhead that, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are united together in the love that they have for one another. The Father for the Son, the Son for the Father, and the Spirit for the Father and the Son, and so on. That God is love. That the Father loves the Son with a unique and dazzling intensity. And he always has. That's why Jesus prays in John 17, Father, I desire that they whom you have given me, that they would be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because, here it is, you loved me before the foundation of the world. As one author has said, the problem with non-triune gods is they have to make themselves dependent on what they create to be loving because they have no object for their love for all of eternity. The glory of the triune God is that only if God is triune can he be talked about as essentially, that is always, at the very heart and essence of his being, only if he's triune can be, he be referred to as essentially loving. That he is self-sufficient. He doesn't need what he's created so that he might get love or give love. He has always been giving love. He has always been getting love for all of eternity perfectly, which means that everything that he's been created is not out of a dependence on his creation to get love or to love or to become love. Everything that he's created has been created as an outpouring, as an overflow of the Father's dazzling love for the Son inexhaustible, independent love that the Father has for the Son, the Son has for the Father, and that they have for the Spirit. It is a fountain of love. To suggest anything else, that God created us because he's lonely, is to make God dependent on his creation, and that is to make him a not God. Everything that God has created, he has created as an outpouring of his love. I love this. One author says this. Creation is about the spreading, the diffusion, the outward explosion of that love. Isn't that amazing? The explosion of love. This God is the very opposite of greedy, hungry, selfish emptiness. 
No, in his self-giving, he naturally pours forth life and goodness. He is then the source of all that is good, and that means he is not the sort of God who would call people to himself away from happiness and good things. In other words, leave good things for an inferior thing. For God to call others to himself is always to call others to the superior source of love. He says, goodness and ultimate happiness are to be found with him, not apart with him or from him. And that is exactly what we found in the garden at the beginning of Genesis. That God created Adam and Eve unique from the rest of the creation insofar as they were able to have an intimate abiding relationship with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And that was governed by the love that had been poured over, exploded upon them by the triune God. And their whole existence was to reflect the glory of God to creation by loving God and loving one another. In other words, when Adam was created, he was created in the image of God, that is to love and glorify God and to have his love pour over onto others. That's why it says in Genesis chapter 2, it wasn't good for him to be alone. Adam wasn't lonely. He existed in perfect relationship with the Father. He's not lonely. He didn't need anything. So what's the problem? Why is it not good for him to be alone? It's because he can't image God if his love for God isn't exploding in others. He needs someone to help him image God in that way because that's the way that God has always been. And so there in the garden, what we see is the very essence, the source, the definition of love, that you would love God and that that love would explode, pour over onto others. But as you know, that was broken ultimately by sin, wasn't it? That they questioned God's love and his goodness, that they found themselves to be the higher object of love that we know what love is and God is not that. He is withholding from us. Therefore, we will take by force what we think is rightfully ours. We don't care if God has forbidden it. Does that sound familiar? There's nothing new under the sun. Sinful man has always been committed to redefining love in our image, divorced, from its ultimate source, that is the triune God who is loved perfectly for all of eternity. So God is the source of love. So when we see that the fruit of the Spirit is love, it is that the Spirit is himself love, and that is the disposition in which he has lived for all of eternity with the Father and the Son, and that is what he is producing in this new humanity, this new creation in the church. That in a sense, we are, be, we are being restored to what humanity was meant to be. That's what it means when the Spirit, who is in his very essence love, is producing the fruit of love. It means that, that God himself is our life source and that fruit that causes us to be imitators of God Ephesians 5.1 is the evidence that we're alive. So if you were to go out to your front yard or your backyard and, and you saw a tree or a bush that was failing to produce any kind of fruit, no leaves, no foliage, nothing whatsoever, that it was brittle and broken, you would tear it out, you would throw it into the fire. Why? Because it's not alive. The fruit of the Spirit is evidence of being alive. It's the evidence of one being taken from death to life, being united to Christ, being born again. And that by necessity produces the fruit that looks like Jesus. Albeit always imperfectly and always progressively in this life, there will be buds. There will be fruit in the life of every believer that has been united to Christ by faith. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Well, if we want to get so many places to go, I was really overwhelmed this week trying to think about how to talk about love in 35 to 70 minutes. <laughs> Give or take. And I think we got to go to 1 John. I think we need to go to the, 
to the apostle whom Jesus loved. Let's see how he defines love. Three times in the Gospel of John, you don't have to go there, we'll spend some time in 1 John. Three times in the Gospel of John, John records Jesus telling his disciples of the command that he gave them to love one another. John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. A few verses later, John 15, 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. And so there seems to be something foundational to love in Jesus' teaching of his disciples and how they're to treat one another and ultimately what it reveals about what they confess to be true about Jesus. Well, John's going to pick up and expand on this theme in his first epistle. Turn with me to 1 John. 1 John's near the end of your Bible. If you get to Revelation, then you've gone too far. Go back to your left. If you're still in 1st, 2nd Peter, Hebrews, you're not quite there. Keep on going. 1st John. What's the whole purpose for John writing this letter? If you glance back at 1st John 5, 13, he says this, I write these things, that is this letter, so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God may know something. What is it that he wants them to know? He wants to know, them to know that you have eternal life. I want you to know, and I'm writing all of these things so that you would know that you belong to Jesus, that you are in fact his people, that you've been saved, that you've passed from death into life. And he says there's two foundational realities that you need to go back to. He's going to use the phrase, uh, He's going to use the phrase, this message that we have heard from the beginning, or this message that you have heard from the beginning. He uses that a handful of times, specifically for two purposes. In 1 John chapter 1, he says, I want to remind you of the message that you've heard from the beginning, that God is light. Remember that? God is light. We see that in verse 5. This is the, or chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. You say, well, great. What does that have to do with us? Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, well, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But, negatively, verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. In other words, you say God is light, that's a lie. And so God is most fundamentally light, light shining in the darkness. That's what we see in John chapter 1 with Jesus. And it's a light that sinners don't like because we love the darkness, John chapter 3. And he shines the light on our own sin, on our own need for a redeemer, and on how he himself fulfills that need in his perfect life and death on the cross. That it's that light that leads us to the truth that we need to turn from sin and trust in Christ alone by faith alone. God is light. He is pure. He is holy. He can be no other. And he calls his people to be the same. That's why Peter writes in 1 Peter, be holy as God is holy. He's just quoting Leviticus. That's God's whole goal. And that's what the, that's what the Spirit is doing in our lives. He's trying to make us holy like Jesus. But that's scary, isn't it? Walking in the light. There's some of you here, when you read some of those verses, you immediately think, if other people in this room know about me what I know about me, they would reject me. They wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. If people in this room knew about me or about my marriage or about my parenting or about my negative emotions or about my struggle with depression and anxiety or with my own struggle with lust and pornography, if, the, if anybody in this room knew what I knew about myself in private, they would turn away from me and reject me, wouldn't have anything to do with me. They would hate me. They would shun me. They would scorn me. So I have no choice but to hide. How do you live in the light? 
How do you you walk in the light and not say that God is a liar? That is so risky. That's why John gives a second foundational Christianity 101 exhortation that God is not just light. God is love. That God is love. And because God is love, we are to love one another. We're not to love one another because somehow we figured out a way to make ourselves lovable. Your lovability is not the grounds for my love to you. The grounds for my love to you is God is love, and he has demonstrated his love by sending his son to be a propitiation for our sins. It's not that I loved him first, it's that he loved me. It's not that he loved you first, or that you loved him first, it's that he loved you first. That God is love. Look at this with me, 1 John 3.11. Let's just look at a number of things that he has to say. 1 John 3.11. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. Whoop, there it is again. That we should love one another. That's what Jesus taught. That's what it means to fulfill the law. Skipping down, John 3, verse 17. John continues, but if anyone has the world's goods, he sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. You need to put your money where your mouth is, is what John's saying. Skipping down, verse 23. He continues, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Skipping over to chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God, or anyone who does not love, doesn't know God because God is love. Look at verse 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, then we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, then God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. How is it that sinners can walk in the light with all of the risk that that includes? The answer is that if you are part of a redeemed Christian community, that community has been called to love you in the same way that God has loved you in Christ at the expense of their own comfort, at the expense of their own convenience, at the expense of their own time and money, at the expense even of their own pride when they are the ones against whom you have sinned? The answer is, you can't walk in the light in a community that will not walk in love. And you cannot be a community that walks in love if you will not be a people who will not walk in light. The two go hand in hand. John is saying that if you want to know that you have eternal life, that you're a believer, then you confess that God is light and you walk in the light. And you confess that God is love and you love one another. That is Christianity 101, that you love one another. Just glancing back at this, here's the warning, chapter 4. That according to John, when people who claim to be Christians show no evidence of God-like, Christ-like, spirit-produced love, then they, chapter 4, verse 7, haven't been born again. Let us love one another. Love's from God. Whoever loves been born of God. You don't love, you haven't been born again. Verse 8, you don't know God. Verses 9 and 10, if you don't love one another, you despise the cross and you reject its example. Looking down at verses 11 and 12, you make God invisible. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, then God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In other words, our love for one another is the way in which we image God to the world as he intended. And if we don't love one another, then we obscure the glory of God to the world. We blaspheme God. This is Christianity 101. This is bare bones basics that we walk in the light, and as we do with all of its risks and all of its pain and all of the temptation to shame and to hiding, we walk in love with Christ as our example. So how is it that we can cultivate this, practically speaking? We need to consider no less than three things. 
Number one, we need to consider God's glory and grace. Consider God's glory and grace. In other words, you need to think higher thoughts about God. First of all, you need to consider the glory of God. John says, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. We just sung the last couple of weeks, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? How is it possible that the one who is infinite, almighty, all-powerful creator, self-sufficient in and of himself, needing nothing because of the perfect Loving relationship between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Infinite, self-sufficient. How is it that this God, transcendent over all that he's created, how can this God with so gap between us love us? That's what one Puritan says. He says, there is an infinite distance and disproportion between God and man. Yet he came over all of that to love man. What difficulty should I then have to place my affection on my equal at worse, or even my better. In other words, if God has gone to such great lengths, him being infinite and me being finite, him being holy and me being sinful, to love me, then why can I not transgress, cross over, to move toward an infinitely shorter distance to those who have offended me to love them? If God has loved me in this way, how could I not love others in this way? So we need to consider the glory of God, the great lengths to which this glorious God has loved us, if it's gonna motivate our love for other, others. Otherwise, we'll make ourselves the standard of love. But we also need to consider the example of Christ. Paul says elsewhere, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Christ is your example. How are you to walk in love? How is it that your whole life is to be characterized by this? That's what walk means. That you do it just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Binning says this, if all that was in me did not alienate his love for me, how should anything in others estrange our love to them? If God be so kind to his enemies and Christ so loving that he gives his life for his enemies to make them friends, what should we do to our enemies? What to our friends? This one example may make all creative love to blush and be ashamed. How narrow, how limited, how selfish it is. In other words, if Christ, knowing about me, and much more so, what I know about me would still love me, how could I not love others when I've been loved with so great a love? Finally, we consider the forgiveness of sins. All of this is under the idea of considering God as glory and his grace, but we consider forgiveness of sins. Matthew 18, you remember the parable of the unforgiven servant, or the unforgivable, unforgiving servant? The servant is forgiven an unpayable debt. It would take him nearly two million years to pay it off, and he would never be able to do it. And the king forgave him at the king's own cost to himself. And then he turned around, and he had a brother that owed him nine months' worth of wages, and he strangled him and threw him in prison. And you're supposed to be shocked by this because of the disproportionate amount of grace that he received to the amount of grace that he was required to give but didn't. So we don't only consider how glorious God is to move toward us in love. The example of Christ who knows our deepest, most grotesque secrets and yet would still lay down his life for us in love. But we consider the forgiveness of sins that we've received is so incalculable that any forgiveness required of us to others is infinitely pales in comparison. How can you be forgiven so much and yet withhold forgiveness from others. That's the point. So we consider our own forgiveness. But we also consider not just God's glory and grace, we consider our own condition. We consider, first of all, our own sinfulness. We've just considered God's glory and grace, now we're considering our own condition. Number one, we consider our own sinfulness. 
and we ask the question, what is there in another person that if I searched my own heart, I wouldn't find the same sin or worse? Do I really think that I'm better than the person sitting across from me who's walking in the light or who has offended me in some way? No, if I take a look at my own heart according to God's word, I find that I am every bit as sinful as that person and perhaps even worse. It is only self-righteousness. It is walking in a lie that causes me to assume that I'm better off than that person is. It's how do we get so upset about a speck in our brother's eye when there's a log in our own? And so whenever we're offended by others, you and I have to consider our own guilt before God and the sins within our own heart. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when we stand at the foot of the cross, we're not only equally forgiven, but we are equally guilty. Who are you to declare yourself more innocent than your brother or sister who's offended you? Benning says again, whenever I find my spirit rising against the infirmities of others and my mind swelling over them, has that ever happened to you? You take a personal slight or an offense from somebody else, you get upset, you become a sin detective and you see everything wrong with that person and your mind just begins to swell in anger, in vengeance, in vindication. He says, when my mind swells over them, I repress myself with this thought. I myself also am a man. He says, that's what Peter said to Cornelius when Cornelius was going to worship him. And he says, that's what I need to say to myself in order to cure my own self-idolizing heart. I need to remind myself when I'm prone to worship myself over and against others, to think that I'm the standard of righteousness and goodness, I need to preach to myself, I am but a man. I am not worth that person's worship, and I am not worth my own worship. And the gospel aims to tear you down from that throne and humble you so that in humility you might give grace to others, the grace that God has given to you in Christ. But we don't only consider our own sinfulness, we also consider our own weakness. Go back to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We're going to wrap it up here. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that is, if they're caught, they've been exposed, it is in the light, now they're in the light, walking in the light, things have just gotten awkward. You who are spiritual should restore him, get this, in a spirit of gentleness. How is it that believers in a local church restore and encourage sinners in a spirit of gentleness and not in one of reproach? And the answer is, in verse 2, that we bear one another's burdens and we fulfill the law of Christ. How interesting is it? That this idea of bearing one another's burdens really doesn't have anything to do with helping one another move into a new house. It doesn't have anything to do with providing meals when we're pregnant or sick. Those are certainly burdens. The context in chapter 6 of bearing burdens is the one who is caught in transgression. He has a broken leg from sin. He can't walk and you're putting him on your back. And you're doing it with gentleness because that's the fruit of the Spirit that is love. I will lay down my life for this sinner. I will bear them up and we will carry them and support them and encourage them and we will cry with them and we'll be wounded with them and we will rejoice with them upon restoration. That's what it means to bear burdens. It goes way beyond providing meals for pregnant ladies. It's upholding those who have been weakened by sin. And what is it that ultimately motivates us? Verse 3, that if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So let each one test his own work. He says earlier in verse 2, keep watch over yourself lest you be tempted. Why is it that we're motivated in gentleness? It's because when we see our brother or sister caught in even the worst sin, we go, that could just as easily be me if it hasn't been a thousand times. Oh, brother, I know what it's like to be a sinner. I know what it's like to be weak. I know what it's like to be broken. I know what it's like to be wounded. And I know what it's like to be scared and full of shame. Oh, brother, sister, Christ's blood has covered your shame. And we are going to move toward you in love as you walk in the light. Because that's Christianity 101. 
That only in that kind of humility, when we understand our own weakness, can we move toward other sinners in gentleness. It's only in our pride that we look at other sinners and go, ah, I told you so. What were you thinking? That is the kind of pride that assumes that, that you would never fall into the same sin. Friend, the only thing that's separating you from any other sinner in this world is the restraining grace of God in Christ. How dare us, how dare any one of us ever think that we are fundamentally, in essence, better than anybody else? On humility, we recognize, I've been there. I will probably be there. I will bear you up, and when it's my turn, you bear me up. That's the church. Finally, we consider not only our own sinfulness, we consider not only our own weakness, but consider your own desire to be loved. Even when you've offended somebody, perhaps it's a spouse or a roommate, you've hurt somebody's feelings, your sin has affected somebody else negatively, even in all of that, you know that your deepest longing is a restoration of that relationship and for that person to love you. There's even something in your own heart that would demand that that person love you in spite of your own weaknesses and sin because you know that's love. Friend, I want to suggest to you that is because the very law of God has been written on your heart. And you know down in the very recesses of your heart to fulfill God's law is to love in that way. Not just to receive it, but to give it. And so when you consider and down in the deepest recesses of your heart how deeply and desperately you long to be loved by others, do you think that's absent in the hearts of your brothers and sisters? You think you're the only one that feels that way? That's not just an emotional weakness. That is the perfect law of Christ written on your heart, compelling you to move in the power of the Spirit toward giving that kind of love to others. That's why Jesus says that you would do unto others as you would have them do unto you, for this is the law in the prophets. Are you a sinner that wants to be loved? So is everybody else. To be a member of the church is to love sinners and to be a sinner who's loved by sinners. Because that is the example that we received in Christ. That is the fruit of the Spirit being produced in us. It is not just difficult, it is impossible unless God in His grace acts upon us. And that is so terribly, completely contradictory to our culture's definition of love that I would lay down my life for you because that's what Christ has done for me. Pray with me.